The views, information, or opinions expressed during the following podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the individuals involved. Hello, and welcome to Pseudo Intellectuals, the podcast where we discuss all things relating to politics, philosophy, culture, and law. I am Abraham Litwin Logan, and today we will be discussing COVID 19 and its relationship with prisons. We're going to talk about the situations in prisons now, how it's been affected as a result of the virus. We're also going to discuss how different policymakers, how different governments across the globe have responded. We'll look into the long-term implications, if there are any, and we're also going to discuss if we should be criminalizing breaking quarantine, and if so, uh, how it should be implemented. Here with me to discuss this, amongst other things, is Harish. How's it going? It's doing good, Abe. How's it going? Going well here. Malak, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you for asking. And Michael, how are things? Oh, So why don't we start with you, Harish? How has the situation in prisons changed recently as a result of the virus? Has there been many changes? Um, I guess the biggest change is that COVID-19 has been introduced in many prisons across the world, um, most notably in the U.S. So what we see is that there's there's been rapid spread amongst both inmates, employees of prisons and prison officers. Um, Just as a guideline, if we take the Department of Corrections from Michigan, out of 42,000 prisoners, already 2,000 of them are positive and they've already encountered 55 deaths, which is a stark figure when you consider the vast number of people that are imprisoned in the US, 2.2 million people. Um, and this isn't different across the developed uh, and uh, world. So what we see is in the UK, we also have cases of prisoners um, who have contracted and have died as a result of COVID-19. And members of staff are facing the same thing. And the situation is more dire in developing countries, I think, um, of the fact that prisons in developing countries are typically far more over-occupied. So the occupancy rates in Haiti, for example, are 450%. Um, In Brazil, it's almost double the number it's supposed to be. Um, These are ripe conditions for COVID-19 to spread, which is why um, prison prisoners and prisons are even more susceptible than before to um, health issues and health risks. I guess the question then becomes how countries and prisons respond to this. So so this is very much an existential threat to the way prisons have been going with their overcrowding issues. Well, uh, I'd like to now build upon Harris's point. I did most of my research uh, in regards to the developing countries. And there have been many riots. A very uh, prominent one occurred in Peru's Miguel Castro Castro jail. And there have been others in South uh, Africa, Thailand, uh, Iran, uh, Lebanon, and Sierra Leone. In uh, the Peruvian riot, nine inmates died and uh, 16 guards, uh, five policemen, and two inmates were injured. One of the reasons for the riots is the fact that there is an overcapacity of the prison. And uh, the prisoners are afraid that they're going to contract COVID-19. Uh, because of the uh, overcrowding and the lack of uh, proper uh, hygiene and healthcare being offered. And that has been a pattern that has occurred in multiple other countries around the world. Uh, I already mentioned how uh, South Africa, Thailand, Iran, and Lebanon, and Sierra Leone have been affected. So that's a very big uh, problem uh, with these developing countries, uh, especially. And the governments have uh, responded in different manners, but I think that uh, that particular aspect uh, should be addressed by us at another stage uh, at this podcast. 
Yeah, I think that brings up a very good question of what exactly the prison system is and whether or not the COVID pandemic has simply highlighted a flaw that was already within the prison system itself or it's something that is born out of the government's sort of lack of response to the pandemic, right? So, I I mean, I'll, I would like to get your, your thoughts on this. Like, what, what do you guys think? Do you think that it's, it's something that has was going to happen and COVID, this, this pandemic is simply sort of uh, a way to highlight that? Or do you think that the government's simply did not act quick enough to stop it from escalating to this point. I think that's a very good point, Michael. And I think there's a variety of underlying uh, issues regarding prisons and you know certain governments' relationship to them. I guess more specifically, um, a question that sort of, you know, glares out at me is, should there be, you know, these people who I guess we'll talk about later in the podcast have been let out as a result of the the virus because they've been in prison for you know minor crimes and uh, minor things like that should they have been in prison in the first place amongst other people who are you know more high risk offenders so that sort of sticks out to me as an uh, as an issue uh, but I guess particularly with the government's response uh, I'm not too entirely sure about developing nations but at least in developed nations we've seen the response to be quite slow. And it seems to me that with prisons, there was little to no response to the virus until there was some sort of public outcry, some sort of public request to the government to um, sort of dealing with the issue. Because quite obviously, you know, a prison is a very compact place. And it would logically follow that if, you know, one or two people get the virus through visitation or however, that it would spread, you know, very easily and uh, very dangerously. So I think those are the two largest issues that um, are glaring to me. Yeah, um, I, I think it, it was an accident waiting to happen simply because of the fact that most prisons around the world um, have a capacity that um, is being far overstretched. So um, the numbers we gave before obviously should bounce out at you and obviously it's certainly the case in developed i mean in developing countries but it's also the case in a lot of developed countries many developed countries um in europe for example have far higher um capacity i mean far higher numbers of people and populations than is supposed to be and um a useful metric to use is to use 105 people for every 100 uh uh, cases of capacity that each uh, nation has. And the Council of Europe has recently come up with um, a study on prison population and has found out that there are far, far too many offending countries than there should be. So I, I, I think um, beyond just the response, it seems like a systemic issue that we're either not having enough prisons to um, compensate for the, for the rate of criminalization at which we're going, or we're simply just um, bringing too many people into prison systems in the first place. Okay, so moving on from that, right, then what would it... So what I think what's happening in the US now, are people sort of calling for, uh, like Abraham mentioned just now, people calling for prisoners to be released because they don't want them to face these horrible conditions that are in prison. Then comes the question of, do you think that you should be released from prison just because there's a pandemic going on and, you know, you are more at risk in these institutions. 
like where do you draw the line right like how what, what what do you think the appropriate response should be so that's a very good point michael and uh, i've done some research and i found that the united nations has some guidelines for uh, what uh, type of prisoner should be released and they list uh, first time offenders and those convicted of nonviolent crimes and uh, those awaiting trial uh, as well however not all countries have adopted this approach and i wanted to highlight in particular Turkey's approach to the issue, uh, they uh, plan to release close to 90,000 inmates, half temporarily and half permanently, uh, in order to cope with COVID-19. However, notably, political prisoners have been excluded from release. Uh, for example, the former leader of Turkey's pro-Kurdish uh, party, Selhatin Demirtas. And uh, the official reason for that is that political prisoners are charged as terrorists. So uh, the jury, there really isn't a reason for why these uh, prisoners shouldn't be released. But uh, what is more problematic is the fact that even murderers are being released. And perhaps that is a questionable approach uh, by part of the Turkish government. At least I find it problematic. I, I feel that especially when you, when you reach uh, that scale of offense, uh, such as murder, uh, perhaps these, uh, these people were taking uh, their freedom for a very good reason and they shouldn't necessarily uh, be, be let out, uh, at, at least without further checks to see if they have really been rehabilitated and can be reintegrated into society. Yeah, Malik raises very fair concerns, I think. And I think what's very um, important to consider when discussing this is the incredibly high recidivism rates. So the likelihood to reoffend of people in the prison population, even amongst prisoners uh, for relatively uh, nonviolent offenses, they still have very high recidivism rates. And over the last few days, I actually heard of two uh, examples of prisoners who um, were in prison for, I guess, sort of minor offenses, and they were released due to COVID. And there was one in Florida. And the, the day after he was released, he shot and killed somebody so that that didn't turn out great and then in Colorado I think this was just yesterday um, somebody was released due to COVID as well and he has just been arrested for murdering uh, a woman in his home city of Denver Colorado so obviously these two examples are anecdotal and I don't think there is you know statistics on recidivism particularly as a, you know as a result of re being released by coronavirus just because it's you know so recent but if we even just have anecdotal examples like this wouldn't it sort of make sense that we want to you know s severely limit um, at the very most um, letting prisoners out due to coronavirus if things like this happen just a quick point of clarification right um so when we say release, we just mean that like they're free to go, you know, like it's essentially the same thing as if their charges were dropped, right? Well, like they're just... my understanding is that certain places are doing it a bit differently. Um, some are just, yeah, commuting the sentence, you're free to go. Others are, um, I guess, putting you on parole, which is a bit hard to do because um, it's difficult for parole officers to really check up on people during this, you know, Difficult time, and then others are doing uh, sort of other measures. I think house arrest and other things like that. Yeah. So, sort of moving from that, uh, I think then the question becomes a very fundamental question of uh, 
do you think that it's okay for the government to infringe on prisoners' rights? Like, to what extent do you think that prisoners should have their rights infringed? Because, I mean, from the from my personal view, prison is is sort of, for lack of a better term, like adult timeout, right? Like, we you shown that you you don't have the capability to make good decisions on your own, and you've committed crimes. So now the government is punishing you for doing that because I mean there's no positive reinforcement for being a law-abiding citizen. So it's all negative reinforcement. It's you know. So then the question is, to what extent do you think that the prisoners should have their right right infringed, and do you think that them being put in prison, even though there is such a high rate of you know the the chances of infection, do you think that that's the right thing? for them to do because they've committed a crime against society? Right. Um, I guess I'll start. So um, I think the analogy is quite interesting, this adult timeout corner, right? But then the question you must ask is, who's making the decisions on whether, or what is the content of the decisions that are causing people to go into prison? So what are the laws that are making people go into prison? So obviously it's not a good idea to get people who are murderers, who are convicted sex offenders, offenders, for example, um, to, to simply come out uh, because that's just dangerous to society. It's dangerous beyond the COVID-19 threat. Um, but a lot of our prisoners across the globe are drug offenders, for example, or minor crime offenders. Um, so firstly, we have to ask whether we're okay with imprisoning so many people, especially people who some might consider otherwise not necessarily worthy of being prisoned. Uh, someone who, uh, for example, smokes marijuana or consumes marijuana in Singapore is uh, liable to like a year's imprisonment. And some might argue that that's not necessarily a good thing. Why should people who are merely consumers not be allowed to exercise their free choice? Or if people are addicts, then doesn't that become a public health concern rather than an issue of putting them into prison and um, making them pay for something that may not necessarily be their own volition or of their own fault. So the question, I think, is a bit more nuanced. So it's not just, okay, you've been in prison, therefore you ought to be in prison. The question is, there's obviously different sets of crimes and whether people who fall into some categories are more deserving of release than others. Yeah, I think that's a fair point to bring up, um, Harish. But I do think that we have to remember that if somebody's in prison for a drug offense, it's not just like, oh, you know, um, I smoked some marijuana or I have some marijuana and, you know, I'm actually a really good person, but, you know, it just didn't work out for me and now I'm in prison. Because the reality is in the U.S., 7% of um, drug offenders um, commit a non-drug crime within nine years. And that's a pretty shocking statistic. So I think it's, um, more fair to say that these people, uh, largely, these people are mm-hmm. in prison for a drug offense, but they're uh, in prison for a good reason, even if the drug offense itself may not be uh, the most appropriate punishment. I don't know, you know, the statistics in Singapore, but mm-hmm. um, I, th- I thought that was a pretty shocking statistic in, in the U.S. at least. But I, I think Harish is right. We do definitely need to evaluate offenses and think, should we really, you know, be sticking someone in prison for, you know, um, carrying some weed somewhere or something like that? 
um, along with somebody who raped someone or someone who murdered someone. You know, that seems a bit crazy to me personally. I think that's something we definitely need to reevaluate. So, yeah, returning to Harish's question, uh, which Abe gave, gave his stance and his opinion on, I think that on principle, at, at least I agree with uh, uh, prisons uh, existing. After all, there are worse uh, alternatives, for example, capital punishment, among others that have been tried out before throughout history. However, specifically, uh, when we're talking about high criminalization rates, it's important to consider whether the country involved has uh, private prisons or public prisons, because many people can argue that the privatization of prisons has made uh, the prison industry a, a business and a profitable business. And in order to have customers, and I say customers with, uh, well, <laughs> with a cool. salt, yeah, with, with quoting yeah. it, uh, you have to have offenders, right? So perhaps that has contributed to higher criminalization rates in, in some nations. And uh, since we have been talking about criminalization, uh, I, I think it would be nice now to just give our, our, our position on whether uh, you think breaking the quarantine should be criminalized, because of course that contributes to uh, the number of people uh, that go to prison, right? And I'm not sure how you guys feel about it. I have uh, my own perspective, but uh, first I'd like to hear uh, yours. Well, I guess personally, I think there does have to be some criminalization of breaking quarantine if we truly want uh, the quarantine to be effective. However, I think what we've seen across countries um, in practice of criminalization of breaking quarantine For example, in the UK, a boy was charged um, last month for breaking quarantine of like something crazy, like 17 counts of different offenses relating to breaking quarantine. And he was just like outside. And just now he's in court and the judge is throwing away all the offenses. So it seems to be quite a mess there. So I think if we do want it to be successful, we need some sort of criminalization I don't know what that is exactly. Perhaps it could be something like um, persistent non-obedience with stay-at-home orders. But even that, like practically, how do you know if I left my home a few times unless there's some sort of government tracking, which you know I, I'm sort of against. So I guess theoretically it's a good idea, but in practice it, I, it probably does more harm than good. Right. Um, I, I think... Abe's right. Like, I, I generally agree with what Abe's saying. So um, I guess this is more a response to the general libertarian argument that people ought to be able to do what they want to do. And um, I mean, if you, if, if you want to willingly accept the risk, you should do it, right? So that seems intuitive and that seems right. But I think um, what people who might argue from this standpoint fail to consider is that a lot of the times the risk that you're assuming also passes on to people who aren't necessarily willing to assume that risk. It could be family members. It could be other members of society that you interact with on a daily basis. So maybe if you go to the grocery store, your essentials uh, worker, who's uh, your cashier, who's handling um, your money is at greater risk simply because you're choosing to go out. So um, on the one hand, you do have uh, a right to free movement in general, but you might want to keep in mind also, I think, that um, I don't think it's um, arguable that everyone also should have a general right not to be um, exposed to the risk of the virus. Well, obviously everyone has different exposures in general. It's a matter of countervailing rights at this point, I think. So uh, the question then becomes where you draw that line. Uh, My position is that I, I think criminalization is a good idea in general. 
but I, I'm not sure that um, that harsh punishment is necessary. So um, there, there's quite a fair bit of evidence that suggests that punishment certainty is more um, persuasive in having a deterrent effect than the content of punishment, meaning the length of sentencing. So um, mild punishments, corrective work orders, um, slap on the wrist type punishments could very well be just as effective. And I think it'll be proportional to the, to the infringement of rights upon other people that um, free movement seems to have. So that would be my position there. Some punishment is necessary, but not necessarily a severe one. I weirdly feel some sort of obligation to defend the libertarianism, so I'll, I'll give it a bit of a shot, Harish. But perhaps yeah. a, an alternative that would mend uh, some of the flaws with the traditional archetypal libertarian position you've suggested would be rather than criminalizing breaking stay-at-home orders, you would allow the public to choose whether or not they want to stay at home. However, you would criminalize uh, if you haven't stayed at home, you're unable to um, interact with other people. And granted, that still is an infringement on people's freedom of movement, but I think it's fair to say that it would be a lesser infringement. Perhaps that would be preferable. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's easy to argue against a nuanced position like that simply because it accounts for the fact that you're not exposing someone else to the risk. Then I think I'd be in favor of, um, of simple simple movement because the, the issue is that the countervailing right in question no longer is a countervailing right because it isn't a question in the first place. They're not exposing yourself. Um, I guess then it becomes a general deterrence argument. So if people are willing to go out, but won't they also be willing to risk the idea of um, meeting someone else at the risk of um, infringing laws that are in place? So okay. yeah, that, that's the other question. That we have to consider what people will be willing to risk. I think, Harish, you bring up a good point about like how your risk isn't the risk of you going out isn't just to yourself, but there's a very like I think there was a there was a point missed, and it's the idea of flattening the curve, right? So it's not just about oh, if I if I if I as a person go out and I don't cut, I don't infect anybody else, it's okay for me to get infected because that's part of my authority, right? But if everybody takes that sort of you get all your libertarians who believe in that and they all take that, that idea, that concept and they run with it, then you see sort of if your hospital can't deal with the spread and can't deal with this influx of people who are now being inf infected, right? Then everyone else, you're putting everyone else who's infected at risk because you have limited the number of uh, ventilators, hospital beds. Yeah, I mean, hospitals have max capacity, right? So I think it's, it's very important to remember that like, even if you don't infect anybody else, you being infected is still a risk in and of itself, not just to you, but to other people as well, because resources are limited. And, they are, and that's becoming like blatantly clear in, in the time we've seen this pandemic spread. So I think it's, it's kind of unfair. And also the second point would be that uh, this pandemic falls more heavily on those who are less privileged and less well off because you have the people who are working lower paying jobs usually don't have the privilege of working from home because if you're working as a cashier you're working as whatever essential services may be you're not you're you don't have that 
option of being like, oh, I'm a, like, say for example, I'm a supermarket cashier, I'm going to work from home. How does that work? You can't do that, right? So the nature of your job means that you can't do that. So you have these people who can't afford to get laid off because, I mean, when you're working as a cashier, I can't imagine you have a lot of savings. So if you are living month in, month out, hand to mouth, right, then you don't have the option of not working. So you have to work. And I think if if you work from home and you say, well, you know, I like I would like to ex- exercise my autonomy by going out and, you know, like I don't care about the risk. Like it's it's sort of it comes from that position of, you know, oh well, I have choice, right? But I think some people don't. And I think it's it's very clear in this climate now that we have to make a stand we have to make a stand and sort of help those who have no choice in this in this situation. Right. I, I think Michael is absolutely right. But um I guess one thing to also keep in mind is that many of the people who are vying to come out to who are vying to um get their businesses going are people who aren't necessarily well off and who rely on their businesses being open. So uh, many of the people who are protesting in the US, for example, are people who own small businesses and are trying to get their businesses open. Because um, this hits business business owners, small medium enterprise owners, the hardest. Small, and um, if they can't have their businesses open, they're not going to be getting any income, right? And because this is their livelihood, they're not going to suddenly shift into becoming a cashier or becoming um, an essential services worker because that's just not what they do. So um, I guess it's this perspective to keep in mind also when we're saying, okay, let's close everything down so we can save our essential workers. But what about people who just simply don't find themselves in essential jobs? So uh, returning to the position of the criminalization of uh, breaking quarantine and other such measures, I feel that if it must be criminalized, perhaps a fine would be uh, a better idea than actually imposing uh, a prison sanction. Because uh, if a person breaks quarantine, there is a good chance that they have uh, COVID-19, or at least there is a chance that they have COVID-19. And if you introduce that person then into the prison system, uh, as uh, has been previously mentioned, uh, there's a lot of overcrowding and other uh, such uh, uh, well ills of the prison system. It's very likely that it will spread to all uh, or to many other prisoners. And, and hence, uh, perhaps uh, imposing a fine would be a better idea. However, I do agree that uh, uh, prison sentences are a better deterrent than fines, or at least uh, they seem to uh, deter people uh, to a greater extent. Yeah. Uh, I think Malik sort of pointed out the cyclical nature of this problem. Right? We're saying prison populations are bad, so let's get people out. But we need to make sure people stay in their homes. So let's um, not find people. Let's get them imprisoned if they break uh, their COVID-19 stay-at-home orders. So I guess there's some, there's some hypocrisy or cyclicalism in the argument that we're making. So uh, I guess that's why I think a compromise of some lesser punishment is a good idea. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think we have a variety of different opinions on it, but I think largely we do agree that there needs to be some sort of criminalization if we do um, stick with the stay at home route. So perhaps we want to move towards how different governments have responded to the situation in prisons. I know we've already discussed how some countries are letting um, 
limited amounts of prisoners out. And in cases like Turkey, like Malik mentioned, or in Iran, they're letting out, you know, pretty large parts of their prison population. But aside from uh, these release programs, what other programs do we see being employed by governments to sort of stop the spread, I suppose, in in prisons? Um, One thing I found noteworthy, just to add on to the to the idea of release is that the UK government, for example, is purchasing uh, equipment so that they can track and release prisoners. So um, this is just a supplement to the measure of releasing people into the general public. I just wanted to highlight that. So I thought that was interesting. Well, to be fair, uh, I feel that uh, the biggest measure that most countries are taking is uh, the release of prisoners. I see that in some other countries, uh, especially in Latin America, there's also been... uh, the distribution, at least to a certain extent, of masks and alcohol uh, in order to help uh, combat uh, the crisis. But really, uh, releasing the prisoners seems like the most practical measure at the time of hand. Because in an ideal world, what I would uh, do as a government would be invest in the uh, in, in healthcare uh, in, within prisoners and uh, within prisons, and also in the hygiene of those prisons. And ideally, I would also construct uh, other prisons to solve overcrowding. But of course, that, that is not realistic in a short term because uh, those uh, prisons that would be constructed would take uh, time to get constructed and it would be addressing another problem uh, complete, uh, completely. So what countries have been doing is releasing prisoners. And, and I feel that uh, that is the best practical measure uh, in the time at hand. Yeah, it, it definitely does seem that uh, releasing prisoners has been the one large response. Obviously, there has been some smaller responses, such as trying to increase sanitization of prisons, as well as to try and spread the prison population um, to different areas of larger prisons. So there's less, you know, interactions. I think they've cut down in the U.S. on uh, prisoner interaction time, which uh, seems to be a step in the right direction. But obviously, there's only so much you can do when the size of prison, well, prisons are, you know, inherently compact systems. So um, that's, you know, obviously a problem. And it remains to be seen what is really the best solution, because, you know, as we've talked about, just releasing prisoners definitely, you know, has some benefits that Malik was just talking about, but it also has some, you know, very severe consequences. I guess we can sort of move towards, I guess, the implications for the long term. Do we see any implications uh, affecting the future? as a result of the way in which governments are responding um, to the virus in prisons? Do we think that, you know, prison release programs are going to be you know, successful in the long run? Um, are governments going to look back and think, oh, we actually should have done a lot more in terms of prisons because all of a sudden we have these huge death tolls in prisons and now we look really bad. And of course we don't, you know, people are just dying. Harish, what do you think? Um I think that we'll see a rapid spread amongst the prison population once it enters the system. I, I don't think it's avoidable because of, of simply the compact nature of prisons and the overcrowding that's present in most prison systems around the world. Um, I guess COVID-19 is a shocker, not just like in the lens of prison systems, but in, in a broader lens. It's, it's a shocker to every system we know because For 100 years, we haven't experienced anything like it. So um, I think this will get 
governments to rethink, especially those particularly concerned with the rights of prisoners, to rethink the way they handle their prisoners and um, make sure that prison populations are able to sufficiently address issues when uh, pandemics like this arise. I guess another thing that um, will force us to go and rethink our prison system model is whether we ought to be incarcerating so many people in general. Um, so like we highlight, like all of us highlighted earlier, um, minor offences are, I, I think it's clear that minor offences are less problematic than serious offences. But uh, as Abraham uh, pointed out just now, it doesn't necessarily mean that just because they've committed minor offences, therefore they won't go on to commit other wrongs in society. So I think it's a, it, it becomes a new balancing act. So we have this additional factor that we need to take into account when we're determining whether we ought to be criminalizing some actions as opposed to others. So I think in general, what I, I would see happening is a general trend towards decriminalization simply because it's expensive and it's, uh, it poses such a great risk. I, I'm just going to ask a, a pretty broad question because I think it's important for our discussion because it's very underlying here. And it's simply that, should we even be concerned that much about, you know, prisons and coronavirus? I mean, bear with me for a second, but, you know, these people, you know, committed crimes, some of them, you know, horrible crimes, they, you know, murdered people. Like, why are we, you know, so concerned uh, with people in prisons, first of all? And then second of all, should we even be spending so much money, you know, increasing sanitization of, of prisons and stuff like that when we, you know, have a shortage of sanitization products for, you know, hospitals and medical facilities. Um, how do you convince me as a, a voter, perhaps, I'll frame it. I think what this pandemic has really done is highlight how unprepared we were for something like this and how slow it took certain countries to actually recognize that this was a problem. So it's not necessarily uh, like... I don't think the problem would be, oh, you know, it's like the hospital doesn't have enough because it has to go to the prison. I think the the bigger issue is more the prison isn't equipped to deal with it because of the system. And the hospital isn't equipped to deal with it because of how we've been how things have been setting up in the long run, right? So it's I, I think it's more it's very important to understand that that's the idea that like it's this COVID pandemic has just, as Harish highlighted, sort of like, it's it's just a way for, it's very, I would, I would say like a horrible wake-up call, right? We're doing things wrong and we have to change the way we do things, right? And I think that it, if we just look at, if we just narrow it down to prisons, I think that we have to understand, like we have to accept that there is a problem in terms of hygiene, in terms of how much, how many people we we bring into prisons, and I think also a reason for the overcrowding, not necessarily. I I mean, sure, decriminalizing is a good thing, like of minor offenses, but I think also the idea is is about rehabilitation, and I think a lot of when you look at when I look at prison systems at least, it doesn't really seem like that's always the idea. It's always like you know, oh, life sentence or like fifty year sentences, forty year sentences. I don't think it's something that. I don't think long prison sentences like are necessarily that helpful. I think I'll be more in favor personally. This is like, you know, unpopular opinion, I guess. But I'll be more in favor of capital punishment as opposed to uh, a 60-year sentence, right? Because I don't see the difference between the two. 
So I think that like, I, I think that keeping somebody in prison for 60 years is just as bad as killing them, right? So yeah, I mean, if you're talking in a purely in the terms of like a monetary standpoint, it'd be a lot cheaper for you to just kill somebody if you're going to keep them in prison for 70 years. Um, let me just jump in here and respond um, to Abe's point. I think Michael also alluded to something quite interesting that um, someone left with me. Um, it's the idea of we're working towards ending death penalties across the world and we're encouraging life imprisonment. But at the same time, we're sort of saying, okay, let's encourage euthanasia, right? So um, it seems like we're taking a this different approach to the value of life in different circumstances. Um, so that's something interesting that I, I think will provoke ideas. Um, responding to AIDS um, voter question, how do I respond to a voter? Yeah? I, I don't know. Um, I guess what I'd say is this is the more incentive for you to get more people out of the prison system instead of incent- investing so much money into it in the first place, right? Do we really need so many people in prison? I guess that, that, that would be my intuitive response. I think um, on a more nuanced level, I think Michael has it down, which is that our systems are ill-equipped and um, there are obviously costs associated with um, like spread of COVID-19 in, in prisons on external populaces. So if COVID-19 spreads in prisons, it's going to affect your prison officers and prison wardens who are going to go home to their families who are going to be shopping at the nearby supermarket or the nearby grocery store which is then going to pass on, right? So it, it's hard for you to think in that sort of narrow lens and just say, okay, because they're prisoners, therefore it's a bad thing. Because that seems to ignore the fact that the external costs. On a more humanitarian basis, I'm just going to appeal to the common humanity that I think most people will be intuitively agree, would intuitively agree with, which is that even if someone has done something bad, I think there's some basic value or dignity that ought to be given to someone even if they're in prison so i guess that would be uh like an intrinsic argument in favor of taking care of people in prison in general i think i agree a lot with the argument uh brought up by harish and so i would support it in response to uh the voters question but also add on by saying that when you commit a crime and uh, there are certain punishments that are prescribed by law and what you envision from a prison is not this place infested with covid19 in an overcrowded situation uh, with all the other uh, ills that are involved. So that is arguably not what was uh, in, in the prisoner's, in a, an individual's mind when they committed a crime. And hence, it's, it would be retroactive punishment if one were to, uh, uh, to say that uh, it's bad, uh, the situation is bad for everyone. So uh, unfortunately, we're going to focus our resources every, uh, elsewhere and uh, you, you, you will have to deal with it because uh, you committed uh, an offense and uh, that entitles uh, the government to give you a lesser treatment than the other uh, citizens. Uh, and that's basically just uh, my perspective in a very brief uh, manner. Yeah, I think also like uh, one, of the, one of the points I want to go back to that Malik, you brought up was the idea of... Uh, privatization? Uh, sort of, yeah, privatization of... Um, yeah. Privatization of uh, prison, prisons, right? Like, it, it becomes a business. So I think it, you want it to be overcrowded, right? Like, as a prison owner, if I was running a prison, I'd be like, yeah, you know, like, send more people in. Like, I don't care. Make it, like, max capacity. No one seems to care about prisoners' rights anyway. I mean, I'm making a very general, broad, sweeping statement here, you know? Like, but I can get away with a lot more. So it's like, why not, right? Like, I mean, clearly, if enough people support the view that it's I think it's a bit counterintuitive for you to say oh we should 
reduce the number of people in prison while also privatizing privatizing uh, prisons themselves because then like they, they just run counter to each other. Why would I want to run a business if the business isn't profitable, right? Then you would just it would just have to be run by the government. So I don't think those two like I'm not sure if those two things can be uh, brought together. But yeah, that's just my view on it. I think we've brought up two fascinating topics very quickly. And I think maybe we'll have another podcast or two to discuss them. Firstly being, you know, the death penalty. Is this something that's, you know, archaic? Is this something that's cost effective and maybe we should implement it more? And then we've we've also, um, what's the other thing we brought up? Oh yeah, private versus public prisons. Another mm-hmm. very interesting topic, which we sort of skated by. So I think we should definitely discuss this more in the future. Because I mean, private prisons aren't all that bad. I mean, there has been some studies that suggests that recidivism rates from private prisons are lower than public prisons. So perhaps that's a benefit that you can hear about in another podcast. Oh, and one thing, Michael, you say nobody cares about prisoners' rights. Well, this whole podcast is essentially about prisoners' rights. So the pseudo-intellectuals <laughs> okay, okay, do okay, care about prisoners' rights. I'm not saying that we don't care about prisoners' rights. I'm just uh, saying that the, the topic isn't something that is as widely discussed. So a lot of the stuff flies under the radar. Like, if, <laughs> if okay, let me just put it this way. Okay, now I defend my point, right? Like, if people really care so deeply, and enough people care about it, we wouldn't have be having this problem in prisons because, like, it, it we have already come to the conclusion that the reason why the COVID nineteen spread is so bad in these prisons prisons is because of the system that was built in the first place, right? And the system that was built in the first place has been around for like. You know, I want to say like, you know, maybe a hundred years and nothing has changed. And now we're like, oh no, there's a massive problem. And then, so if they've already been getting away with it for so long, then I mean, I think it's fair to say that I think not not that nobody cares, but not enough people care to affect the change. Yeah, sure. And thank you guys for managing <laughs> with my hyperbole and my a bit of humor I brought to the situation. <laughs> Obviously, this is a very, very serious issue. But I think even with very serious issues, it's important to look at the humor in life. Anyways, this brings me to the final question of the podcast. So imagine you're the supreme leader of your country. Let's say the country is, I don't know, the United States of America. And New York, a New York Times reporter asks you, oh, uh, Mr. President, what are you going to do about coronavirus in prisons? And what's important is your, this is an election year. You're pulling at 51% in the polls and you're allowed to do one thing uh, to either ameliorate uh, the problems with coronavirus in prisons, or maybe you're going to choose not to because you think that's more politically beneficial. Harish, I'm putting you on the spot. What's your one solution? Um, release more prisoners. I think that will swing me. I, I think that will swing some votes my way. Michael, how about you? I think I try to keep them in but uh allow them better access to medical facilities because i wouldn't want like you know i, I feel like uh, allowing a massive population of prisoners out would just be not something that would be the, the public would take kindly i mean taking the account that it is an election year and I, if i want to get elected i think that's what i do and malik how about you well i'd consider the fact that i already had served one term and i think that uh Having already gotten that success, I'd invest in the prisoners themselves. And I'd say I'd uh, both uh, 
release them and try to provide those that remain with the most support as possible. Unfortunately, I'll likely lose the election, but that would be okay with me. So I'd have already been uh, uh, marked in history, and that would, that would, that would be all. <laughs> so for, oh, no, our, you. for our listeners, we have three varying political views, I suppose. Harish is going to win the election by releasing murderers into society. Michael's going to win the election by letting these murderers go to hospitals. And Malik's going to win the election by investing in the prisoners, maybe with a universal basic income. Obviously, I'm exaggerating and joking uh, a bit about this. <laughs> obviously, you know, prisoners, you know, are obviously not just murderers. And I think that's so obvious that we can joke about that. Um, for me personally, I suppose I'd probably um, not release prisoners, but I would increase sanitization efforts and increase social distancing uh, in the prisons to hopefully limit the spread, as well as to ensure um, whatever measures there are to prevent you know, people bringing it into the prisons, whatever that would be. I think that may be successful. So I think we had a very interesting discussion, uh, a very timely discussion today. Um, so just a couple notes before we go for our listeners. If you're a fan of the show or just enjoyed today's episode, leave us a rating, a review in the podcast store, or tell a friend about us. Stay up to date. Make sure to subscribe to our show. You can reach out to us on Twitter at pseudointpod. Follow us on Instagram at pseudointellectualspod or like our page on Facebook at pseudointellectualspod. Thank you for joining, Harish, Michael, and Malik. And thank you to you, the listener, for uh, listening to us discuss such an interesting topic.